Thanks for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and follow at Church in the City. What a wonderful time of worship this morning. Honestly, it was. Um, such a treasure and a treat to, to worship every, every single Sunday. Not just today, but every single Sunday with, with the family. Lord, we thank you so much for that incredible privilege again. Just to gather in the name of your Son, this, the Son uh, that is risen. Jesus, you are seated at the Father's right hand, and that gives us such confidence and boldness to know that we can come this morning not on the back of the kind of week that we've had, good or bad, or the kind of week that we hope to have, good or bad, but we come this morning um, uh, clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus, and that gives us confidence. It frees us from performance. It frees us from trying to make things happen, and Lord, we, we, just, we throw off any hint of religion, Lord God. I, I, I pray, Lord God, that, that, that as individuals, as families, and as a church, that we would be able to throw off any hint of religion and performance. And Lord, we come today because of the finished work of Jesus on the cross. And we thank you for all that that means, for all that that entails, for all of the incredible implications to us, to our city, to our nation, and to the nations of the world. And thank you that we can enjoy and revel in that today, in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 15, if you, can turn, if you have a Bible with you, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. The words will come up on the screen behind me, so if you haven't brought a Bible with you, no, no problem. But that's where we're going to spend most of our time uh, this morning. There are generally uh, two kinds of people in the world. Those who love sparkling water, those who prefer still water. Those who take cream in their coffee and those who have their coffee black. Android phone lovers or iPhone lovers. Cat people and dog people. Those who eat their corn in a linear fashion from left to right and those who eat their corn in a circular fashion. No, I'm not playing the flute. I'm rolling the the corn in a circular fashion around. Those who place their toilet paper in the toilet roll holder so that it rolls up and over rather than down and up. Every single one of you know that you guys do that, so don't judge me for including that. Those who are glass half full people and those who are glass half empty people. Those who walk in the room and say, there you are. And those who walk in the room and say, here I am. You guys know the difference. (laughs) Which are you? What kind of person are you? When Paul, when Paul was writing 1 Corinthians 15, he had two kinds of people in mind as well. He had in mind those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam. Which are you? Now, I know that most of you sitting here in the room are probably going to respond in two ways to that question. Either you are going to know that you are in Christ or you're going to be surprised that there was such a distinction between the two. If you are in Christ, if you know that you are in Christ, then my prayer for you today is that as we dig into the Word of God, you would be washed by God's Word as we remember and reflect on the significance of the resurrection. And if you're here today and you didn't know there was such a distinction between those who are in Christ and those who are in Adam, then my prayer for you today has also been that you would be ministered to by God's Word. Not that you would find this talk interesting or hopefully kind of fascinating, but that it would be life-changing, and that when I ask that question again at the end of the sermon, you will be equipped to be able to answer 
in one way or the other. The church in Corinth was by no means a model church. There was factions. People within the church were suing one another. There was incredible, uh, 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 very awful, shocking immorality. But the biggest concern of what was happening in the church in Corinth was there was uncertainty around the resurrection. People were unsure about Jesus' bodily resurrection and were also uncertain about their own. And that is a massive issue if, if you are a Christian. But I think we mustn't just assume that it was a, a struggle that the church in Corinth was facing. I think that there are far more Christians than we may realize who, who struggle with the reality of, the, of their own resurrection. I, there's no doubt there are some of you here today who you are sure and secure in the reality and the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. But if you were asked the question, what about your resurrection? Well, you might be surprised. You might not be sure. Well, you know, will I be raised? What, what, what does it look like? I'm not so sure. I don't know. I haven't thought that far. I'm just trying to get through the end of the week, let alone think about my resurrection. Was Jesus raised? Why did it happen? Will I be raised too? What does it mean? These are questions that, that Paul is asking and answering and questions that we're going to ask and answer this, this morning. And there are three ways in this text that we're going to look at today that, that Paul answers these questions. Firstly, he says, the resurrection is a fact of history. He then goes on to say, well, if it wasn't, we need to pack this all in. But the good news is that because the resurrection is a fact of history and it did happen, there is an incredible consequence. Death is dead, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time. For 2,000 years, people have been taking every, making every effort to, to fit Jesus into their mold or into their idea or into their uh, plan of, of what a Savior or what a Lord should look like. And unfortunately, all that they've ended up coming up with is a mannequin that they've dressed to look something like them. And can I say that Christians cannot do that? Christians cannot do that, although at times we, we tend to make that mistake of trying to force Jesus into our mold. The reason why I say Christians cannot do that is because as believers in Jesus Christ, we hold to the conviction that Jesus, the Son of God, is a man who walked this earth, who ministered, who died, who was buried, and who was raised from the dead. And so we do not have the opportunity to, to mold Jesus into our image Rather, we need to be molded into his. The point is, the resurrection and the gospel is a fact of history. And that's the first thing that Paul gets to. In verse chapter 1, uh, sorry, in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, Now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. Notice he's answering questions about the resurrection, but he talks about the gospel. The resurrection of Jesus and the gospel are inseparably linked. If you are part of Church in the City, you know that for the past four weeks, we've been unpacking our, 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 our new vision framework, our vision and values. And we've been looking at, at, at things like um, how God wants us to look at ourselves. He, he, we've been looking at how we should see the world and the, and, and the world that we long to see. And, and we've been using gospel words, gospel phrases, gospel ideas. All of that is null and void if the resurrection didn't happen. Not just our vision and values, friends. This, this, this gathering is worthless if the resurrection, doesn't, if the resurrection didn't happen. 
Our faith is futile. And Christianity gets reduced to just us following a few good suggestions by Jesus. Paul carries on, by this gospel, verse 2, by this gospel, the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection, by this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first or as of greatest importance. And then Paul mentions four things, four facts of history that define the gospel. Firstly, in verse 3. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. Friends, the death of Jesus under Pontius Pilate is a verifiable fact of history. And it happened, Paul says, according to the scriptures. Two-thirds of this Bible talk about a, a savior of the world who would come and suffer greatly and eventually die a horrific death on the cross. Jesus fulfills every single one of those of hundreds of of prophetic promises about him being the savior, savior of the world. Secondly, verse 4, that he was buried. Why would Paul include the fact that he was buried? Simply because you don't tend to bury people who are still living. Thirdly, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The fact that resurrection is humanly impossible doesn't mean that it didn't happen as a fact of history. And then lastly, verse 5 and 6, and then, and that he appeared to, to Cephas, to Peter. The church knew him. And then to the 12, the, the church that he's writing to knew them too. And after he appeared to more than 500 of, of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom who are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is, is driving home the, the point, the reality that the gospel is rooted in, 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 in the facts of history. He's saying to them, you know Jesus walked the earth. You know Jesus died on the cross and that he was buried. You know the tomb is now empty. And if you're struggling to believe, go and find Peter. Go and find the 12. Go and find the 500 that, that, that Jesus appeared to. And they will help you with your unbelief. Then he appeared to James. They knew him too. Then all the apostles. And last of all, Paul writes, he appeared to me also as one abnormally born. The point Paul is making, the point, the first point is simply this, is that the gospel is rooted in the facts of history. There is a trend in our culture today where we don't feel the liberty to challenge people's beliefs. Because if they believe it, we aren't in a position to, to question what, what they believe. Even if it's some, some outlandish truth, if, the, if, the, if it's true to them, it must be true to them. You know, it, it, it can't be challenged. And, and so it, kind of truth becomes a, a reality in the eye of the beholder. Truth is a perception. We're very nervous in our culture today of phrases like absolute truth, especially when it comes to radical claims like the resurrection from the dead. And so what happens in our culture is the gospel is sidelined to some personal spirituality. Can I suggest that that's not at all what Paul is doing here? What Paul is doing is he's saying if the gospel is true, if Jesus was raised from the dead, which he was, then, if, then it is true for everyone. As Christians, we get to testify to the historical reality of that gospel. Just like the man in John chapter 9 who was, who, was, who was blind but met Jesus and was radically healed. His testimony, our testimony can be, I was blind. I was lost, I was hurt, I, uh, and I was broken. 
I met Jesus. He, he, he healed me. He made me whole. He restored me. Now I can see. My testimony can become other people's testimony too. The resurrection is a fact of history. The second thing that Paul gets to is, is he says this in verse 12 through 14. He says, well, let's assume for a moment it isn't. If it isn't, then we need to pack all of this in. Let's read together verse 12. But, but if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless. And so is your faith. About six months before we left South Africa to move to the States, I had a run-in with lightning that I would like to forget. And lightning is not the kind of thing you want to have a run-in with. Probably a number of things you'd rather have a run-in with than, than lightning. The, the situation was I was playing golf um, in Johannesburg. Johannesburg in the summer are known for their very violent electric storms. And we were out golfing and the dark clouds were beginning to gather and somewhat unsurprisingly, the, the storm siren on the golf course begins to sound, which means that all golfers have to get off the golf course and find shelter because an electric storm is coming. Unfortunately, we were kind of on the furthest part of the golf course, quite a desolate part, and it was quite some distance between, between us and the nearest shelter. And so as the storm clouds are gathering, we start walking across the fairway to the nearest shelter and... There's parts of the story that I don't have time to tell you, but essentially, the, the, the biggest challenge we faced was the nearest thing around me were all short people, and, and, I'm, uh, and I'm me. So that was, that was kind of the, the most concerning issue that was, that was kind of happening at the moment. So, you know, seven or eight of us are, are kind of walking across the fairway, storm clouds gathering, and I had this, I, had this, I don't know what it was, a sense, just a, perhaps God just forewarning me, but... I just felt, I had the sense, get ready, you're about to be struck by lightning. I mean, I kid you not. And I, and I looked off to my right, and as true as I see each of you, trust me, as true as I see each of you, out of the sky came this lightning bolt, and it struck the ground about 10 feet to my right. Not me, it struck the ground about 10 feet to my right. I was, I was thrown forward, my right arm was, was kind of tingling, I had a headache as, as if someone hit me over the head with a baseball bat. I'm lying on the ground thinking, oh my goodness, what just happened? And out of nowhere, well, not, not out of nowhere, but all of a sudden was this almighty thunderclap. And it literally scared me almost to death. It was crazy. I have a, I, I'm very nervous of thunderstorms right now. I have great respect for lightning and thunder. <laughs> Our first year in downtown Chicago was on the 26th floor of a building. And there was some pretty graphic thunderstorms, which, which scared me. I used to hide under the covers during those moments. The, the point I'm trying to make with all of this is, is thunder and lightning go together. It is a fact of physics. Thunder is caused by lightning. If you were crazy and didn't believe in thunder, what it would mean is you are dismissing lightning too. And that's essentially what Paul is saying here, not about thunder and lightning, but about Jesus's resurrection and yours. He's saying in verse 7 and 8, in verse 1 through 8, he's saying, Jesus was raised from the dead. The lightning has struck. And so the thunder is coming. Your resurrection will happen because Jesus' resurrection has happened. 
Your testimony, my testimony, if we are in Jesus, becomes he died, so I died too. He was buried, I was buried too. He defeated death, I defeated death too. When Barack Obama was voted in as president of this nation, his wife became the first lady. No one voted for her. She became first lady because of what happened to her husband. It happened to her because of what happened to her husband. And that's essentially what Paul is driving home right here. What happens to you, what has happened to you, has happened to you because it has happened to Jesus. And so Jesus was physically raised to life. The lightning. I will be physically raised to life one day too. The thunder. Although right now, we live between the thunder, the lightning and the thunder. We live in that time between Jesus' resurrection and my resurrection. That's why currently we face hardship and we face suffering and, a time, and, and we face death. But the one thing we know is, is our Sunday in its fullness is coming. Jesus' Sunday has come. Jesus has been raised from the dead. Our Sunday in its fullness is coming. But because of the goodness of God, we can experience something of that resurrection that Jesus has experienced in the here and now. And if Christ hasn't been raised, in verse 14, we're going to look at that now. If Christ hasn't been raised, which he has, there is no reason for hope. And I would suggest to you, what is life without we have a piano at home, which, which was, it was given to us, and, and it's rather old. And, and on some of the hard keys, the, those keys don't work. Now, now, we are able to work around the fact that some of the keys don't work. And I want to suggest to you, friends, that, 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 that life without hope is not... Is not a, the way to respond with life without hope is not to work around it. It's to find hope in the reality of what we can hold on to. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The resurrection of Jesus is a fact. Secondly, if it isn't, we should pack it all in. But the good news is that it, is, that it, is, it did happen. And so what are the consequences? And this is where we're going to focus the rest of our time. It means that death is dead. Look at verse 20. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Amen? But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The key word there is first fruits. My wife, Debs, loves to nurture things. And because we have a moratorium on owning pets in our family, other than a guinea pig, which kind of worked his way into the family before the moratorium was passed, uh, um, we, Debs has to find something or, or someone to nurture and to love, which is why she loves little kids. But what happens in our home is Debs has given her nurturing instincts over to plants and herbs and flowers. And so in preparation for, for the summer that's coming, Debs has already started to grow in kind of silver baking trays scattered across our house. She started to grow little flowers in, and, and she calls them her babies. And and every morning she wakes up and, she, and she, she waters the babies, she waters the plants. And we've noticed the first fruits, the, 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 the promise, the anticipation of the fullness of what is to come has started to break out you know, beneath the ground. 
That's the reality of what Paul is driving home here. The first fruits is the, is the early season guarantee of what is to come. Paul is saying that Christ's resurrection means death has given way to life. That there is a massive harvest of life, of all things, and of resurrection life for those who are in Christ. And Christ's resurrection is the guarantee, it's the first taste, it's the first fruits of what is to come. How so? It happens because the cause of death, which is sin, has been overcome. Look at verse 21 and 22. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Let me explain what that means. Sin causes death. Sin has caused physical death, and it's caused separation from God. And the human race dies... Because we are in Adam, and Adam has sinned. Outside of of, of us being in Jesus, the, the cause of death, the cause of my death one day might be old age or sickness, but the reason for my death, the theological reason for my death is the fact that I'm in Adam outside of being in Jesus. Now, some of us might find that really hard to understand because we are raging individualists. And we say, it's not fair. It's not fair to, to be lumped in to, to some consequence of, of something that someone did thousands and thousands of years ago. I brought a number of props to help illustrate the point. If, if I were to take this apple, and if I were to stab this apple with this knife, this apple faces the consequence of this knife, but nothing happens to this apple. This apple is totally fine. The reason why this apple is not affected by me stabbing this, this one is because they are not organically connected. They are not linked. But that's not true of what it means for us to be in Adam. James, would you mind coming up here? I'm not going to stab you, don't worry. But uh, <laughs> I'm going to pretend to stab you. And what I need you to do is I need you to slowly die over about a period of 35 or 40 seconds or so. Can you, can you do that for me? All right. No. <laughs> if you haven't said those words already, it's too late now, James. So imagine, well, it's a, it's a gruesome thought. The good news is coming. The good news is coming. Imagine if I were to stab James with this knife. He is going to slowly die over, you can fall down and do the appropriate thing. Begin to fall down. Over a period of time, we don't have time to wait for James for rigor mortis. No, stay down there. Stay down there. <laughs> Over a period of time, firstly, the, the, the initial organ that got impacted by me stabbing James would, would cease to exist, would stop, would, would, would stop working. And, and slowly that decay, that, that deadness would begin to spread throughout the rest of his body. Over a period of time, his foot would even begin to stop working. But at no part in that kind of process of death setting in across his entire body, at no part in that process does his foot suddenly stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, let's just stop for a moment. This is not fair. I wasn't stabbed. It was James's stomach or James's lungs that was stabbed. The reason why James's foot dies as much as any other part of his body is because he is one. And that's the reality of what it means to be in Adam. Adam sinned, and death came into the world through Adam's sin, and so you and I in Adam die as well. That's what verse 22 says. 
For as in Adam all die. You'll get a chance to be resurrected in a few moments, James. Hang on there. <laughs> verse 22. For as in Adam all die. But look at verse 20, the second part of verse 22. So in Christ all will be made alive. Now, the medical professionals out there, I know James died theoretically from a stab wound, and if I were to get those electric shocks, that has no effect for a stab wound victim. But let's assume for a moment James died because of a heart attack. And I have those, those shock things, those, what are they called, help me? Shock pads? Shock pads. Let's call them shock pads. I know that the medical professionals are like, what? I get them together, and I shock James into life. And he doesn't, and again, all right. And he comes to life. Come to life, James. All right, thank you. You can go take your seat. What did I miss? (laughs) The reality is, I didn't have to shock every single part of James. I only had to shock one part of his body, and the rest of him came to life. And that's the reality of what it means to be in Christ. Just like in Adam, all die because of Adam's sin. So those of us who are in Christ, all of us are resurrected to life because Jesus came to life. Adam died, and if I'm an Adam, I die. But Christ was raised, and if by faith I'm in Christ, I will be raised too. So let me ask you the question that I asked at the very beginning. Are you an Adam, or are you in Christ? Now some of you may think, well, if I'm in Christ, why then do I still face the reality of death? And verse 23 answers that question. The reality is, there is a delay between the, 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 the certainty of death and the reality of death. So in Christ, all will be made alive. Verse 23, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, first the lightning, then when he comes, those who belong to him, then the thunder. And then in verse 26, then the end will come. This is an amazing verse. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I was born in the early 70s, and so growing up, my go-to video games were things like Super Mario and Donkey Kong. And I'm probably showing my age. And for those who don't know what Super Mario or Donkey Kong are, were, they were video games which the basic premise of the video game is there are certain levels that you have to defeat some smaller villain. But in order to win the game at the end, no matter how many smaller villains you have destroyed, the point of the game is to destroy the massive gorilla at the end if you are playing Donkey Kong. Let's put it into NCAA basketball terms. Uh, Loyola, unfortunately, didn't lose, so I have to use Michigan as the example. So Michigan, Michigan get to play in the championship game on Monday night. But in order to get there, they had to, they had to defeat five smaller villains in order to get there. The big villain, which is Villanova on Monday night, has to be defeated. If they don't defeat the big villain, it's pointless that all the smaller villains were defeated. There's uncertainty over whether Michigan are eventually, if they're going to defeat Villanova or not. That's not the case with Jesus. 
Jesus has defeated all of the small villains and he's taken on the big gorilla, which is death, and he's defeated death too. Because Jesus defeated death, every single smaller consequence of sin, you can be rest assured that he has defeated those too. So shame and sickness and separation and Satan and demons and destruction and desolation have all been defeated because death has been defeated. Again, I ask you, are you in Adam or are you in Christ? What does this mean? Let's bring this into land. I want to say if you are in Christ, then I want to tell you there are, there are some incredible consequences of the fact of, of what I've just preached this morning. If you are in Christ, firstly, what does this mean? It means there is hope. There is hope for you and hope for me that I will be raised with Christ. The banner over my life is no longer death. The banner over my life is life because I'm in Christ and Jesus is alive. I just uh, had that kind of prophetic picture this morning as I was preparing that... um, we need to realize that if we're, in, if, if we're in Christ, the banner that once was over us was written as death, but it was written in non-permanent marker. And Jesus, by the cross, has come, and he's wiped, that over, he's wiped that off. And he's replaced death in permanent marker, the words now written over our life. is life in permanent ink. Never to be erased. And I know we know this to be true for for our lives in general, for those of us who are in Christ. But I want to just say, for some of you, allow the truth of God's word to release his life over your life. Allow the truth of God's word to release life over your marriages and life over your relationships and life over your physical bodies. And life over your finances. There is great hope that we have because Jesus has defeated death. The second reality of what this means. It means we can live a life of faith. Because death is defeated. We know that the lesser villains have been defeated. And so we can trust and know by faith that they no longer have to have influence in my life. The fullness of Sunday is coming. The fullness of my resurrection is coming. It's happened for Jesus. The fullness of my resurrection is coming. But the reality is, what is, what is true in God and Jesus now can become a reality in my life by faith. It means intimacy with God. It means healing. If you are in Christ, there is hope. There is faith. Thirdly, I want to say there is worship. We get to worship God for what he has done. If you are not in Christ, the response is simple. It's a response of invitation. A response of invitation to to come before the altar of God, to surrender, and to say, Jesus, would you come into my heart and into my life as my Lord and Savior, that I might live and live in you. I'm going to ask the worship team to, to come up. And I, as they do that, I want to just read one last scripture. And that is from Isaiah chapter 25. 
The words will come up on the screen behind me, but Isaiah 25 is this incredible prophetic text that where a thousand years before the cross of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah is, is, is declaring, is prophesying the very reality of what we have just preached on. And in Isaiah 25, verse 7, the prophet Isaiah declares this. He says, on, listen to this, on this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations, he will swallow up death forever. I want you to imagine, just get a picture in your mind that there is this, there is this dank, damp, dirty uh, tarpaulin that has been thrown over humanity. And at first we found it kind of quirky and, and, and interesting, and, and, and then we found it awkward and uncomfortable, but eventually mankind got so familiar with the reality of death that we've forgotten even what it would ever look like to live in a world where death wasn't a reality. That's the world we live in right now, where we have almost no concept of what life would be without death. And here the prophet Isaiah is saying, he will swallow up death forever. There is a time coming, friends. As, as sure as Jesus was raised from the dead, where you and I, in Christ, will live where there is no longer death. Verse 8 says this, the sovereign Lord, these are the results, the sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. There's something so tender. There's something so precious about a, a child. Not a, not a child who's throwing a tantrum. There's nothing precious about that. But there's something so, so tender about a child who is, who, is, who is crying. And a father scooping, up, scooping him or her up and holding his child close. And then wiping away the tears and saying, it's okay, my boy. Okay, my girl, daddy's here. That's the promise of what the father wants to do with us. The struggle, the hardship, the pain that we all face, the father holds us close and he says, it's okay, I've got you. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces and he will remove his people's disgrace from the earth shame that you carry because of things you've done or because of things done to you will be wiped away. Discouragement, disgrace and shame removed. How do we know this is going to happen? Verse 8 says, the Lord has spoken. The Lord has spoken. The death of death is certain it's happened and we can rejoice in the resurrection of Jesus because we know the death of death has happened and the greatest experience that we can have yes we we can live in resurrection life yes we get we we have our we can have our physical bodies healed yes there is broken relationships that can be restored but the greatest the greatest consequence of the resurrection of Jesus is that we can have intimacy with the father because of Jesus' death and resurrection. And that's what Isaiah gets to in verse 6. 
the greatest promise of all is the promise of intimacy. And he says this, this in verse six, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. We're gonna come in a few moments together to break bread. In, in, in a couple of minutes, I'm gonna invite you to come down and to, and to grab a piece of bread representative of Jesus' broken body and a little cup of grape juice representative of Jesus' blood spilt on the cross for us. And we're going to take this and we're going to go back into our seats and we're going to celebrate the reality that we can enjoy intimacy with the Father. The great banquet feast that the Father is, has prepared for us at the end of the age, this is a foretaste of that great moment. But before we do that, I want to ask one last time. Are you in Christ or are you in Adam? And if you are in Adam, if you know that you are not in relationship with Jesus, friends, I'm not asking you to join this church. I'm simply inviting you to respond to the invitation Jesus is putting out to you. And your response is simply this, Jesus, would you come into my heart as my Lord and Savior? Right now where you are seated, if that's you, could you just take 30 seconds or a minute, close your eyes and say, Father, Jesus, I don't understand this all. I don't fully comprehend this all, but I know that you are drawing me close to you. You are inviting me to respond to you. Would you come into my heart as my Lord and as my Savior? Maybe you're here today and you know that you are in Christ, but you're not living as one who is. Why don't you just take a few moments to say, Father, would you forgive me? Give me the strength to live as I know you would want me to live. Let's just take 30 seconds to respond. Respond as you need to. Just reflect on the reality of the, the goodness of the resurrection. Savior you are, Jesus. We love you. We praise you. We thank you that you have conquered death, that death is dead. And because of that, we get to live in resurrection life. Thank you that we get to experience freedom from shame and from suffering and from, 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 from sickness. Thank you that you strengthen us and enable us to find hope in you. We ask in Jesus' name for your presence just to come and minister to our hearts this morning. As the band begins to play, why don't you guys stand up and come and grab a, a cup and a chunk of bread and let's make our way back to our seats and then we're going to break bread together as a church. Thanks again for listening to the Church in the City podcast. Subscribe on iTunes and visit us at churchinthecity.us.